Good evening. Last week we finished our wonderful study on the Word of God from Psalm 119. As a standalone, we're going to go to the Word of God again to 2 Corinthians 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians 5. We'll pick up the reading at verse 16. We'll include in it my favourite verse, which is verse 21. But 2 Corinthians 5, 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for God, for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favourable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favourable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. May God bless the reading of his word. What is the gospel? Such an important question. Life and death, heaven and hell hang in the balance on that question. J.I. Packer once said one of the most urgent tasks facing the evangelical church today is the recovery of the gospel. I want to think this evening, what is the gospel from this passage of scripture focusing on in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21? Four things stand out for me. That's not all there is to the gospel. There are other parts of scripture that tells us things that we need to know and understand about the gospel. The gospel is multifaceted. But out of what we have read, four truths emerge. Firstly, the gospel answers the greatest question of all and that our problem is sin. Secondly, that the gospel is about the Father's love for us. Thirdly, the gospel is about the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And fourthly, the gospel brings about a change of status, initiating the life that at every stage is dependent upon the gospel. First of all, the gospel answers and addresses the problem of sin. It's our most fundamental problem. Verse 19, not counting their trespasses against them. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our fundamental problem is sin, is a lack of righteousness. Man's fundamental problem isn't health, important as that may be. Man's fundamental problem isn't poverty or inequality or wealth distribution or injustice, as important as they may be. Our fundamental problem is not unhappiness. No, unhappiness is the result of a more fundamental problem. Man's fundamental problem is not the environment, which is just but a sign of a world that is out of sync because of the fall, because of sin. No, sin is the fundamental problem. Falling short of the glory of God is the fundamental problem. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. That is the problem. We lack that righteousness, that integrity to stand before our sovereign Lord and God. Sin is the problem. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And the problem here in this text, 2 Corinthians 5, is addressed along a particular line of thought. In other places of scripture, Paul in, uses the language of the law courts, like justification. And that, that fundamental problem is seen in terms of being right with God, legally, have been justified. That is our problem, the language of the law courts. 
We need to be in a right standing with God. Other times Paul uses the language of the temple. We come to the temple because we're unclean. We come to the temple because we have to bring a sacrifice. An animal has to be killed. Blood has to be spilled. God has to be propitiated. Atonement needs to be offered. In other times Paul uses not the language of the law courts or the temple, but the language of the marketplace, that we are debtors. We need that debt to be paid. Redemption needs to be offered. The redemption price must be paid. The law courts, the temple, the marketplace. But in this text, 2 Corinthians 5, the metaphor is taken from the language and society of human relationships, societal relationships. And the fundamental problem is, as Paul sees it, that we have been alienated from God. And we need to be reconciled to God over and over again. In these verses, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21, Paul uses the word reconciliation. Paul has a ministry of reconciliation. He issues the imperative, be reconciled to God. Why? Because sin has separated us from God. That is the fundamental problem. Our problem is a fundamental problem of sin. It is the problem of every man and woman and boy and girl in the entire world tonight. That by nature we are children of Adam. By nature we are sinners. By nature we are trespassers. By nature we are alienated from God. There is a barrier. You know what it is like when you're alienated from someone? And even in the even in the context of marriage, there can be alienation when spouses are not communicating and relating to each other as they ought. There is a barrier, a non-speaking, unfriendly relationship. That is the metaphor that Paul is employing here. The fundamental problem is the problem of sin, the problem of transgression, which has alienated us from God. Secondly, the gospel is about the Father's love for us. The gospel is not about what we do. The gospel is not about some kind of human cooperative relationship. The gospel is certainly not anything we initiate. The gospel is what God does. God the Father addresses the problem of sin. The problem is our inability as a consequence of sin. We can't save ourselves. At one level, and understand what I say by this, the problem is God. I want to put it that way. At one level, the problem is God. It is God's holiness. It is God's righteousness. It is God's inability to look upon sin. Sin cannot reside in the same place as holy God. At one level, that is the problem. The fundamental problem is not our dysfunctional dysfunctionality. It is not at one level our ability, inability to get along with one another. Our fundamental issue is our inability to be alienated to, to to be right with God and until we see that that we are alienated that we are separated from God we cannot appreciate the gospel you remember the rich young ruler good master what must I do to inherit eternal life and the very form of the question is saying what must I do as though he could do something to inherit eternal life and Jesus took him to the Ten Commandments he took him to the law and the rich young ruler's response was all of these I've kept from my youth and Jesus took him to the 10th commandment, the commandment about covetousness, and said, sell all you have and go give to the poor. Knowing that he loved his riches more than he loved the idea of being right with God. And he couldn't do that because he had no concept, no understanding, no appreciation, no conviction. 
that the problem of his heart was sin, alienation, and it was the problem of his transgressions. He had no sense of sin and therefore no sense of God's holiness and God's righteousness. So God must take the initiative. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. We don't reconcile ourselves to God. God reconciles himself to us. That is the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The initiative is always God's. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 8. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. God does it. The initiative is God's, which is good news because we are dead in trespasses and sins. We are wholly unable to do anything about our salvation. We're not just lost. I've said this before. We're not just sick. We're dead in trespasses and sins. And the good news of the gospel is that God has come in. The initiative, the determination, the power of a sovereign God at work going into the far country to seek and save those that are lost. And thirdly, the gospel focuses, centres on the life and death, especially the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first third proposition here is that the gospel centres on the life and especially the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in this text it is not just it is not just the fact that Jesus died that that in itself is not good news because hundreds of thousands of people die every day it is not good news per se that a particular man called Jesus died 2,000 years ago on a cross that is not in itself good news an author once wrote the gospel is not a sense the gospel is not a sense of propositions it is a story hello but it is a set of propositions too because the story of the gospel has to be interpreted because otherwise, what is Calvary but the death of a Jew on a cross? That is all it is unless certain propositional truths are attached to this specific death. Now notice what it, Paul says in verse 21. First of all, that he knew no sin. That could never be said about you. It can only be said about Jesus. Of the millions and billions of people on the planet, that statement can only ever be made of one. Of Jesus, he knew no sin. He was sinless. John 8:46 which one of you convicts me of sin he was not guilty of actual sin he never committed a sin and more than that he was not guilty of original sin he didn't have the desire to sin he didn't have the proclivity to sin he didn't have the propensity to sin he did not have that lust to sin he did not what augustine calls concupiscence the bent the desire to sin and break god's law he did not have it he was tempted in every way as we are without sin he was the sinless one, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, not a blemish, not a mark, perfect, absolute perfection, not just a good man, but absolutely perfection. They say to err is human. No, because Jesus was human and he did not err. He never sinned. He never ever sinned. He was perfect in thought, word and deed. And Paul said, God made him to be sin. He made him to be sin who was without sin. In a legal sense, he was reckoned as a sinner. In the whole course of his life, he lived perfect, perfectly. He was absolutely perfect. He did not transgress, but on the cross, God reckoned him to be sin. He was treated as though he was a sinner. He was treated as though he was the worst sinner that had ever been. 
The question is sometimes asked who killed the Lord Jesus. It wasn't the Jews out of envy. It wasn't Pilate out of spite. It wasn't Judas out of greed. Ultimately, it was our father because God made him sin and punished him, cursed him. That is what crucifixion meant, the curse of God. Cursed is everyone who hangs upon a cross. God gave him up for us all. Now, Paul gives the explanation here in verse 19 in Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. That is such good news. This is the gospel that we preach. This is the gospel we live by. This is the gospel we die by. This is the God that we believe in. The God who does not count trespasses against us. There are millions of people in the world this evening who think that the gospel is that God does not count sin against you. I may be a sinner, but who is perfect? But God doesn't count sin against you. God forgives because that is what he does. My friends, that, isn't, that, isn't, that is not the gospel. That isn't the way that Paul is addressing what God did at Calvary through his son in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It isn't simply that God doesn't count sin against us. He doesn't count sin against us because he counted our sins against Christ. Paul is not saying here that God just forgives just like that. No, in order for our sins to be counted not against us, they were counted against his son. Substitution for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That preposition for us. I think it was Luther who said the gospel is all about prepositions. Me in Christ, Christ in me, God reckoning my sins against Christ, reckoning his righteousness to my account. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our problem is the lack of righteousness. How can we stand before God? How can we enter the gates of heaven? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We must all stand before God and give an account. And we must give an account, either clothed in our own filthy rags, which is our own righteousness, or clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which has been reckoned to my account. What Paul says about the gospel here is the great exchange. My sins reckoned to Christ. His righteousness reckoned to me. And that's what took place on the cross. It was my sin that held him there until he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As our sins were reckoned to his account, the judgment of God was poured on his head, my dear Saviour, in the place of the wicked. It was my sin that held him there. It was for me, his enduring, not just enduring, exhausting the wrath of God that my sins deserve. He exhausted it so there was none left for me. That my sins will never be punished. We never get what we deserve because it was exhausted on the Son of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And finally, the gospel brings about the fundamental change of status. It releases us from our guilt. If you trust the gospel, if you believe the gospel, it releases you from your shame, your guilt, your humiliation, because you are reckoned the righteousness of God and there can be no guilt. There is nothing to answer for because he has done it all. Horace Horatio Spafford, when his wife and four daughters left Chicago to sail for England on the ship, the Ville de Havre, and when it went down in the mid-Atlantic, his four daughters were killed. They were drowned and his wife, when she got to England, just sent a telegram to Horatio Spafford saying, saved alone. 
and he made that journey across to be with her and at the point the ship went down they stopped which is when he wrote those lines my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and i bear it no more and he could sing praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul my guilt is gone you stand before the judgment seat of god and hear the words not guilty because in christ if you're in christ you're a new creation and it's as though paul was saying that something of the new heavens and the new earth and the future life has begin to begun to dawn in our present existence we aren't who we used to be we aren't in adam we're in christ that's my identity in christ i'm a new creation Paul says in verse 20, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God is appealing to you, be reconciled to God. You may die before, you may die before this day is through. We may stand before the judgment seat of Christ before the day is through. And God is appealing to you tonight. His heart overflows for you. Be reconciled to God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That is the gospel. It isn't about what you can do. It is not about your performance. It's not some kind of model reformation. It isn't about promises that you can make. No, it's with empty hands we come. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked look to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me saviour or I die.